After the Second World War, the Allies held trials of suspected war criminals in Europe and the Far East. Some of the defendants were acquitted, others sentenced to death. Were all these trials fair and just? This is the story of the trial held at Belsen. There are many accounts of the horrors of the German concentration camp at Belsen. It was a place where no one in his right mind would wish to spend an hour, let alone a week or a month. These accounts emphasise the alleged depravity and cruelty of the guards. Names like those of Josef Kramer, the camp commandant, and Irma Graser, a guard, may already be familiar to you. The image which you probably have is of fiends, devils incarnate, and you may be glad that they were sentenced to death, thinking perhaps that a quick death on the gallows was too good for them. You might even think that they should have been shot on sight. This is what Stalin and Churchill had in mind, and it is what the Americans did to fifty or so German guards when they liberated the camp at Dachau. Of course, they didn't know without a trial whether amongst the men they were shooting was a 16-year-old conscript who had arrived the day before, but they simply didn't care. The Americans were generally great lovers of the law, and at Nuremberg they were planning a large-scale trial of major criminals. Against this background, Britain could not risk being seen as less just, and so when we liberated Belsen, we decided that suspected criminals should also be given a trial. What I want to do now is to have a closer look at the process which sent these men and women to their fate. The court, the law they were tried under, the trial, the charge against them, and the evidence against and for them. It will then be up to you to take whatever view you think appropriate. The facts are very simple and are undisputed. Bilson is a small village north of Hanover, and in 1944 was the site of a concentration camp. The British entered the camp on the 15th of April 1945, and quite rightly were appalled at what they saw. It was simply an outrage. There were about 43,000 prisoners in a very poor state of health, and about 10,000 unburied bodies. Disease was rampant, typhus, cholera, TB. Evidence of malnutrition, starvation and dehydration was widespread. Deaths were running at about 800 a day. The camp commandant was Josef Kramer, and he had a staff of guards, although a large number of these had left the camp before the British arrived. The logic in the minds of the British was then quite simple. If an outrage had been committed, someone must be responsible. That person, or those people, should therefore be tried, and if found guilty, be punished. The easiest targets were the staff at the camp. They were clearly involved, although we must be careful what we mean by that word, and additionally they were in custody. Clearly justice demanded that the guilty be brought to trial, but there was also a political aspect to these arrests. The British public had heard about the outrage and were, quite rightly, very keen that those responsible for the outrage should be punished. They wanted blood. Now, to hold a trial, you could just sit around a table with some friends and declare yourself a court. But if you do that, it would be a kangaroo court, and that would not command international respect. Accordingly, in June 1945, the British government issued a royal warrant, and this document gave authority for the British Army to establish a military court before which the defendants would be charged. 
It also established the rules which the court would follow, and essentially these were the rules of a British field general court-martial, but as we shall see later, with some exceptions. If you try someone, you need to have a law against which to judge them. Sometimes the law of Portugal is the right law, or that of Guatemala. Clearly, neither of these was appropriate in the matter of Belson, but German law would have been highly relevant. However, the decision was taken, rightly or wrongly, not to use it. There exists an international law of war, which included, and continues to include, the Hague and Geneva Conventions. These conventions lay strict duties on those fighting wars, and if you fail to perform your duty, you can be tried by a court and be punished. And so it was decided that the trial would be according to international law. Given that we now have defendants, a court to try them in, and a law to try them by, what is the charge which we should make against them? The first, and indeed very major, problem facing the prosecution was that in the summer of 1945 there was no international law which prevented the government of a country from ill-treating or even murdering its own citizens, or the citizens of its allies. You might think that wrong, and the situation has since changed, but that was the way things were when the Belsen trial started. Hundreds of thousands of the dead in German concentration camps at Auschwitz and Belsen and elsewhere were from Germany or her Axis allies, and accordingly there was nothing in international law which made murdering them illegal. A charge against the defendants at Belsen that they had murdered their co-citizens, even thousands of them, would therefore fail. Within the Belsen camp there were, or had been, many Allied prisoners, mainly Poles and Russians, but a few French, Dutch, Belgians, and even a handful of British. A prosecution for offences against these people might perhaps be successful. However, a tradition of the English legal system is that a charge against a defendant must be sufficiently clear for him to know what exactly he is being charged with, and in, say, a murder trial this would include the name of the victim. Now, although it was quite clear that many Allied prisoners had died in the camp, generally their names were not known. Fortunately for the prosecutors, there was evidence suggesting that eight Allied nationals, whose names were known, had died in the camp, even if details surrounding the deaths of most of them were sparse. Given the magnitude of the outrage, the prosecution needed a charge which would entail severe penalties for those found guilty. Could the prosecutors therefore charge each defendant that he had ill-treated one or more of the eight named Allied prisoners and caused their deaths? Unfortunately, there was no evidence that any of the defendants had directly ill-treated any of the named prisoners, much less caused their deaths, and a charge in these terms would almost certainly fail to gain a conviction, and a failure would be seen by many as being even worse than not prosecuting at all. What to do? A stratagem was then adopted. The defendants would be accused that they had conspired with each other to ill-treat Allied prisoners and had caused their deaths. Now, a conspiracy is a curious thing. You and I can sit around the kitchen table and conspire to rob a post office. We are guilty of the offence of conspiracy, even without putting on our masks or raising our koshas. Our guilt is proportional to the role we take in the conspiracy. If you are the mastermind and I am the stooge, you would rightly expect a longer sentence than mine, even if you stood outside the post office 
while I went in and did the dirty work. We could also be guilty of conspiracy, even if we did not come to a formal agreement. If you attack our mutual enemy, Fred, I happen along and join in with you in battering the luckless Fred, then we are conspiring in our assault. But if, say, a number of fans at a football match launch individual attacks on policemen over a period of time, are they acting singly or as part of a conspiracy? Identifying a conspiracy is not a cut-and-dried matter. Now, at Belson, there was no evidence presented at the trial that any formal agreement, the chat around the kitchen table, had taken place. All that the prosecutors had were statements from witnesses who claimed to have seen a defendant ill-treating one or more prisoners, usually unnamed. The prosecution then claimed that because different guards had ill-treated different prisoners, all the guards must have been acting in concert and were therefore guilty of the charge. If you accept this argument, then it is a small step to claim that anyone who was a guard at the camp was a member of the conspiracy, and this is what the prosecutor in fact claimed. The defence said this was ridiculous. A guard posted to the camp and arriving the night before the liberation would, on the prosecution's contention, be guilty of mass murder after having done no more than sleep in his bed overnight. The court accepted the argument that a conspiracy had existed. Turning now to evidence. The rules concerning evidence were decided by the terms of the Royal Charter. One of these rules was a provision which allowed the court to accept hearsay evidence. Hearsay evidence was not allowed in a British criminal court at that time, nor is it now, because it's thought that it unfairly weights the balance against the accused. Some of the evidence presented to the court was very shaky. Serious allegations were made against some defendants by former prisoners by means of sworn written statements, but these were unsupported by oral evidence. That is, the witness did not appear in court to answer questions from the defence about his allegations. This was important because the court couldn't know whether the witness, say, had good eyesight or was sure of his identification of the defendant or bore a grudge against the defendant, as many prisoners must surely have done. The official legal adviser to the court described this practice to the judges as dangerous, and indeed so it was. It would not have been accepted in a British criminal court then, nor would it be today. The prosecution started preparing for the trial on the day the camp was liberated, the 15th of April 1945, and therefore had five months that is, to the 17th of September, the day the trial opened, in which to search for evidence and put its case together. By contrast, solicitors were appointed for the 45 defendants on the 10th of September, exactly seven days before the start of the trial, and even then each solicitor had to defend three or four defendants. You must ask yourself whether a day and a half is sufficient time to prepare a case for a man who is in danger of losing his life. In the English system, lawyers who act for their clients in court are barristers, men trained in advocacy. But the counsel allocated to the defendants were solicitors, indeed men whose main legal experience was in civil law, things like wills and trusts, and not criminal. I dare say that if you were on trial for your life, you would want to be represented by a senior barrister, probably a QC, who had had experience of criminal trials. Uh, there was no reason why such people could not have been appointed, 
but the British authorities did not do so. As I have said, the trial was according to international law, not English law, and the solicitors acting for the defendants had very little knowledge of this specialised area. They asked, wisely in my view, for help from an expert, and Colonel Professor H. A. Smith of London University arrived in court on the tenth day. We can only speculate how the trial might have gone had he arrived earlier. There was also no appeals process. The sentences had to be confirmed by higher military authority, but there was no process by which a defendant could challenge, in open court, an action or decision by the tribunal which he thought was wrong. might also be appropriate to mention the judges. These were five army officers of high rank, but their expertise was in fighting wars, not in practising law. You might also wonder whether they found it easy or difficult, possible or impossible, to put from their minds the results of finding the accused not guilty. If they had found the accused not guilty, British justice would in all probability have become an international laughing-stock, the might of the British Empire would have been questioned, and from a personal point of view there could have been implications for their military careers. The trial came to an end on the 17th of November 1945, and these five men retired to consider the evidence they had been hearing over the previous two months. They had to decide the guilt or innocence of each of the 45 accused, and where they decided on a guilty verdict, they had to decide on a punishment. They completed these tasks expeditiously, taking a total of five hours and 46 minutes, which works out at a bit less than eight minutes per defendant's. Magistrates in British courts today are likely to take longer in deciding a minor motoring charge. But unlike magistrates in a minor motoring case, they gave no explanation or justification for either their verdict or the sentence. What I now invite you to do, however, is to consider whether those defendants who were convicted were properly convicted. I do that not for their benefit, but for ours. If we are a just people, it is imperative that our courts act according to the highest standards. If we have a justice system which does not deliver justice, we lose our right to call ourselves civilised. Many people at the time generally supported the verdicts and sentences. They had wanted blood, and that was what they were given. But support was not universal. Ellis Smith, a British Member of Parliament, told the House of Commons that the trial was a farce because no one had been found guilty of murder. Hilda Lisevitz, a defendant, thought the trial a farce because she had been found guilty on the basis of a written 15-line allegation by an ex-prisoner who did not appear in court. And the Economist newspaper thought the trial a farce because the British justice system was not equipped to deal with the situation with which it had been presented. But you must form your own view. Thank you. <laughs>